Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pillar 2 pregame show, our five-part podcast series where we cover all things Pillar 2 just in time before Q1. I'm your host, Nick Tricarci, and thank you for joining us for episode three. And if you're with us today, then it means you have some jurisdictions that are going to be in scope of Pillar 2 next quarter that won't qualify for the safe harbor. Or you just really love Pillar 2, and either way, we got you covered, and we're happy you're here. One quick plug before we get into today's episode, if you have any questions that you want us to answer, any questions at all, we are planning on hosting a mailbag episode, and we would love to hear from you. It's really easy to submit a question. Just go on the website where you found this podcast. There's a link to a form you can fill out. Process is super quick, so don't be shy. Okay, so now on to today's episode. We are going to be talking about the full-blown Pillar 2 calculations and how they work. Quick nutshell, what Pillar 2 is going to require companies to do is calculate a new effective tax rate measure called the GLOBE ETR for every jurisdiction. This GLOBE ETR is basically going to redefine the meaning of taxes and income and therefore basically require companies to create a third set of books in order to calculate it. And then if this new GLOBE ETR is less than 15% in any jurisdiction, a company is going to have to pay that difference as the top-up tax. Now, in actuality, it's a lot more complicated than that, but big picture, that's the gist. So this GLOBE ETR is basically at the heart of Pillar 2, and it is very challenging to calculate. But we have the perfect guest on today's episode to help us break it down. She is a principal in our Washington National Tax Practice, has been following Pillar 2 since its infancy, and has been an excellent advisor to our clients for much longer than that. So we are very lucky to have Quinn Quinn on with us today. So Quinn, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me here. All right, Quinn. So on the first two episodes, and even in my intro, we've been teasing how challenging it is once you have to do the full-blown pillar two so you don't qualify for the safe harbor. So let me just straight up ask, why is this so challenging? As you said, the computation for the GLOBE ETR itself is difficult because while we start with defined concepts as covered taxes in the numerator divided by GLOBE income, which would be in the denominator, both of these are new definitions, meaning they're going to be calculated very differently than how we've historically have thought of covered taxes and income for either book or regular corporate income tax purposes. So as mentioned earlier, you would start with the amounts that are recorded in the financial statements using the account of the parent entity, which is relatively easy, but then there are a significant number of adjustments that you have to make to compute the GLOBE ETR. And these adjustments are just new and different and not quite completely tax and or accounting concepts. On top of that, those adjustments are going to require the companies to find and pool a significant amount of data points, which are going to come from a lot of disparate sources, some of which come from tax records, some from accounting, some from legal and HR, for example. A lot of the data required to perform the calculation of the GLOBE ETR are things that companies before these rules come into effect aren't something they had to track before. So it's going to be a huge lift to one, find the data that currently may not exist or currently is not recorded, but it's also going to require a lot of work to work through various functions to prepare 
all of this information just to comply with the Pillar 2 computation. And finally, one of the things I'll note is the full-blown GLOBE information return itself comprises about 28 pages and a lot of different data points for each of the jurisdictions that the M&E group operates in. So to this end, you know, multinationals that are in scope would have a lot of data points that they're now going to need to track or record or be able to pull from the various systems in order to just do the full-blown GLOBE computation. I'm not sure what all the fuss is about. That doesn't sound challenging at all. <laughs> but all right, let me just play that back real quick. So one, I need to compute two brand new amounts referred to as covered taxes and globe income by making a whole host of adjustments to my financial statements, which is really that third set of books that I referred to. Two, it's going to require a lot of new data to calculate each of those adjustments. And three, now I'm going to have a new tax return that I need to file in each jurisdiction, which is going to have its own significant data requirements. And I'm actually glad you mentioned that last part because we talked about the safe harbor last episode and we didn't even mention how much time it saves you on the actual compliance front as well. All right, so I want to unpack each of those three things. But first, I've got a quick follow-up for you, Quinn. I've heard that we're actually expecting more guidance to come up from the OECD. So is it possible that these rules are actually going to continue to change even now? Yes, that certainly is true. We do understand that the OECD Inclusive Framework continues to work on developing additional administrative guidance and FAQs potentially that hopefully they will release before the end of the year. But even if they do release guidance before the end of the year, which many of us are expecting, at least for some of the safe harbor questions, our understanding is that even well into 2024, as jurisdictions are implementing their domestic legislation, there will obviously be continued questions around how to interpret these rules. And it is our expectation that the OECD has said that they will continue to put forward guidance into 2024 about the operation you know, and interpretation of these rules. Well, that just adds another challenge. I've been doing a kind of a football analogies as we've gone through the different aspects of pillar two. And, uh, you know, I've described the globe ETR as like trying to go the length of the field, but really it's, you got to go the length of the field with two minutes on the clock and they're changing the rules as you're playing the game. So, uh, very difficult for companies. All right. So let's dive into this globe ETR a little bit. I like to learn through examples. So I thought maybe it would be best if we could just talk through the numerator and denominator and talk about what are these adjustments and, while we don't have time to get into all of them, obviously, I was hoping you could tell us, you know, what are the top two or three things that we're seeing people struggle with, either because it's complex or just takes a lot of time to find to prepare the information. So if we start with covered taxes, what are those two or three items, Quinn, that are really causing a lot of work from an adjustment standpoint? Sure, Nick. For that, I think in terms of some of the complexity, as we've talked about, you know, one of the things that the inclusive framework guidance provides is the use of deferred tax expense. So deferred tax expense is accounted for to help mitigate the timing and the differences between book and tax, but it's not deferred tax expense the way financial accountants might know it. So for deferred tax asset or deferred tax expense, you may have to remeasure at a 15% minimum rate. So it's recasted and not necessarily how it's been recorded in book. 
In addition, for deferred tax liabilities, at least for certain types of DTLs, there's a five-year recapture. And so if the DTL does not reverse within the five-year period, then a group may have to go back and recompute their GLOBE ETR and modify their covered taxes to account for the fact that the DTL had not reversed. In addition, the types of taxes that you would expect to be paid, for example, through a CFC level where the tax is normally paid in the shareholder jurisdiction, well, for purposes of Pillar 2, there are special rules that allocate taxes that might have been paid in one jurisdiction to a different jurisdiction. So in the context of CFC rules, we refer to this as sort of a push down of the shareholder tax to the relevant jurisdiction where the CFC might be located. And again, there are special rules for, in the case of the US multinational, subpart F and guilty. And for subpart F and guilty, because those systems in the US are different, there are different rules on how you measure the tax and how you allocate it to a particular jurisdiction. Okay, so we also have a concept of push down accounting in the book world, and it is, like you said, very complicated to try to figure out which expense or income relates specifically to which entity. And so it seems like that challenge is going to exist in this Pillar 2 world. I'm glad you brought up this recapture because we've said, hey, some of this information that you're going to need to do this calculation, you may not have had to prepare before, right? And so I don't know that there's a lot of companies out there that are scheduling their DTLs to see which ones are going to reverse in five years or not. And now that's going to be required for every DTL on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So that's just one small data point in this Globe ETR calculation that will resonate with some folks. All right, so let's transition to the denominator, Globe income. Same question, Quinn. What are two or three adjustments someone needs to make to their gap income to arrive at Globe income? Sure, Nick. Adjustments to income or expense that are attributable, for example, to purchase accounting for an acquisitive business. And again, this is irrespective of when that acquisition may have occurred. So it could have been before these rules were even in effect. If they're reflected in the MNEs consolidated accounts rather than in the entities' accounts, they're generally not going to be accounted for when you're determining the constituent entities' financial accounting net income or loss. Similarly, if you have local statutory accounts to U.S. GAAP conversions, for example, that may also create a difficulty with respect to determining the globe income for the entities within a particular jurisdiction. And then similarly, you may have elimination from intra-group transactions that, again, occur in consolidation that you would not necessarily take into account when you're computing the entity's financial accounting net income or loss for purposes of the GLOBE rules. So as I'm listening to you talk, it's really resonating with me because this sounds like a bunch of accounting adjustments that really have nothing to do with income taxes. And I'm thinking this can be really challenging for someone to comply with depending on how they keep their general ledgers or you know internal books and records. I mean, number one, on purchase accounting, let me just emphasize what you said there. Basically, all purchase accounting adjustments need to be reversed regardless of when the acquisition took place. You know, that alone can be a real challenge if companies have done push down accounting and actually recorded those, you know, step up adjustments in the books and records of the target company such that the old historical cost information may not really even be readily available anymore. You know, two on the statutory to gap conversions you mentioned. 
you know, I think the reason this is required is because the globe ETR must be calculated using the parent's basis of accounting. So, you know, US GAAP for a US company. And I know a lot of companies don't prepare US GAAP financial statements for every entity or, you know, they don't make every single statutory to GAAP adjustment, you know, due to materiality or whatever reason, you know, but now this is going to be required under pillar two. And then lastly, that point you made on intercompany, I think is really important. You know, because this is a jurisdiction by jurisdiction calculation, you basically have to prepare separate company financial statements for every country. And therefore, you know, all the intercompany transactions that include an entity outside of that given country will need to be included in the Globe ETR, despite the fact that these are eliminated in consolidation. And I don't know of really many companies at all who currently have their consolidation process configured to be done on a country by country basis, meaning intercompany eliminations are performed at that level. So this adjustment in and of itself could require a ton of manual effort just to untangle all of that intercompany activity. All right, so we've talked about six potential adjustments that need to be made to the financials in order to calculate Globe ETR. Three for the numerator, three for the denominator, and in reality, you know, there could be upwards of like a dozen or so for each of these, which is why we really keep saying this is not only going to be very difficult, but data intensive as well. You know, and on that point to calculate, you know, these adjustments, which are brand new, you're going to need new data. So Quinn, you know, I just, I'm wondering, can you talk about how companies are actually going about finding this data that's needed to calculate all of these adjustments and the importance of being coordinated across the various departments in that exercise? Sure, Nick. As you say, this is really a pretty large data exercise that cross different functions within a group. And, you know, what we're seeing is obviously that financial accounting folks will need to be involved. Your tax folks will also need to be involved to help translate the GLOBE rules, as well as legal understanding also the entity structure and human resources for payroll data, for example, all of which are elements that are important to the overall globe computation. And so we are seeing companies start to work through their organization, understanding which groups will have a role in the computation or which groups should effectively take control of pulling the data together and creating it because as you discuss or as we've been discussing, some of the adjustments are not things that historically a company has been tracking. And so figuring out which group should start tracking it takes a little bit of time, as you can imagine, especially in a very large organization. Yeah, that's great, Quinn. And it's been a constant theme on this series of tax and accounting need to be speaking each other's language, right? And I think it's always dangerous when tax people try to understand GAP and when GAP people try to understand tax because <laughs> there's no translation. Who knows, Maybe Rosetta Stone will come out with a translation after all this. Who knows? But, you know, in all seriousness and getting back to the original question about, you know, how are people going to find this data? There's a huge data gap exercise going on with Pillar 2. And, and what I mean by that is companies are looking at, okay, what are all these unique data points that I'm going to need in order to do the globe ETR calculations. And honestly, the starting point for that comes from the rules themselves. It's going to tell you, you know, the adjustments that need to be calculated. And then from there, you know, you're identifying all the information you need to do that adjustment. And then companies are taking inventory of all those data points, comparing it to information that currently exists, either in their internal work papers 
or their systems or other records, and then trying to find those gaps that, you know, they need this for pillar two, they don't currently have it. And then trying to farm out each of those gaps to those functions you talked about based on who the data owner is. So if accounting is responsible for, you know, 10 of these data points that don't currently exist, hey, accounting, go figure out how we're going to get this information in time. Tax, HR, legal, same thing. All right, Quinn, let me get you out of here on this. We like to do a thing at the end of the episodes. I call it the coach's corner, where I ask my guests to put on their coaching hat and give our listeners some advice on how to implement the things that we just talked about. So, you know, with that perspective, what advice would you give to our audience on how best to calculate this Globe ETR calculation and some of the data challenges that go with it? Well, I think the best advice or the one that we're seeing most companies start with is obviously it's very important that they identify which jurisdictions they expect to be in scope in 2024, meaning those jurisdictions that won't qualify for the country by country safe harbor, for example, because those are the jurisdictions that you're going to need to focus on right away, figuring out the data exercise that you've just talked about, because that will be the jurisdiction where you're going to have to do a full-blown pillar two globe ETR computation. And again, it's just a matter of one, identifying those jurisdictions, understanding the entities and businesses that are included or operating within that jurisdiction. You know, a lot of the things that you just spoke about in terms of identifying the data gaps at that point become easier because you've sort of isolated the jurisdictions and the entities. And a lot of companies are utilizing that as sort of an ability for them to test where they are failing with respect to identifying the data. And even if they have the data, how do they pull that and put it into the right system for purposes of computing and actually running the globe ETR computation itself? So that's sort of at least where we're seeing a lot of the initial efforts with respect to the globe rules. That's great, Quinn. And I think that point you just made right there about, you know, really uh, making sure you've isolated the jurisdictions and entities that are going to require the Globe ETR is critical. You know, I'd also layer on the importance of isolating the specific adjustments themselves that are going to be relevant to those jurisdictions. So point is, you know, really taking the time up front to scope this thing. So you're only doing the data gathering exercise for what really matters in 2024 can make a big difference on your implementation timeline. So, okay, Quinn, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate you helping us with this very challenging part of the implementation process. Thanks for having me. And make sure you join us back here for episode four. We are going to be switching things up a little bit. Instead of explaining the rules of the game, we're going to be introducing the people that will be officiating those rules, a.k.a. our referees. The whole episode is dedicated to the accounting and audit requirements of Pillar 2. And when it comes to the audit in particular, there's a lot of things you need to consider. So you're going to want to make sure you come back and have a handle on what those are. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we're social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMGFRV.